next three weeks after today, I'm going to be doing a series on one of our value statements about the Bible. So there are certain things we value at the Gospel tab. There are certain things that we value as a network. Those values are listed uh, here on the wall outside in the foyer of the Gospel Tabernacle. But right now, you can also find, find our values listed on the website, thegospeltab.org. We're about to launch a network website as well, and you can take a look there. The values will be there too. But it is our, those value statements are our articulation of what we think it means to be the church in our time, uh, who it is that God has called us to be as his people. And one of those statements is about the Bible. Now, we're not going to read the entire statement today, but I am going to read the first statement, uh, the first uh, sentence, rather, from our statement on the scriptures. It says this, we love the Bible because Jesus is the word of God. We love the Bible because Jesus is the word of God. We, I love to say to the Greenhouse Network that we are Bible people, um, and there's a reason that we love the Bible. It's because Jesus is the word of God. Now today, I'm going to jump around um, in a bunch of scriptures. If you want to turn there, turn to some scriptures with me, they'll be on the screen, but you can be in the Gospel of John. I'm going to jump around a little bit, and then I'm going to be in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah for a little bit. Um, this is not normally how I preach. Normally, I think it's good for us to get rooted into one scripture during our time together and really try to understand it. There's danger in stringing together a bunch of scriptures because, as you know, when you string together statements out of context, you can kind of make them say whatever you want, right? So you see this. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I, so once in a while, I've been close to a news story, like personally close to something that got reported like in the local news. If you've ever been close to something that gets reported in the local news, you've probably had the feeling that I've had that's like, that's not how that went, right? Um, and it's not that the person is necessarily being dishonest. They're just trying their best to report to you, um, you know, what you experienced in its entirety. And they're just picking a statement here, something that happened here, something that happened here, and they're stringing it together. It doesn't really create the full picture. Well, there's a danger in preaching out of God's word that way, you know, and stringing together a statement here and a statement here and a statement there. It's really not my preference. Uh, but for today, to set this up for the next few weeks, I felt like it's what was best. So you can write down these scriptures. There's going to be notes up on the screen, and then you can look at them yourself and understand them more fully in, in the future. And as these scriptures come up on the screen, I may ask you to read them out loud with me. I like it when you do that, all right? So first of all, if we talk about being Bible people, it would be good for us to start today by identifying what the Bible is and what the Bible is not. Let's start with what the Bible is not. The Bible is not, as one Christian song from the 1990s said, basic instructions before leaving earth. Does anyone remember that song? Um, I, John was mentioning, like, old Christian songs last week, and, um, and it's totally okay if you don't know any of these songs. Nothing is wrong with you if you don't know any of these songs. As a matter of fact, you might be better off, all right? Um, but I remember this song playing a youth group. I called it Basic, get it, B-I-B-L-E. Are you seeing that? Basic instructions before leaving. Okay. Um, the Bible is more than that. In fact, the Bible is not really any kind of instruction manual or rule book. Even though there are instructions in the Bible and there are rules, there are portions of the Bible that we call the law. Um, but the Bible is not fundamentally an instruction manual or rule book. As a matter of fact, I think we make mistakes in interpretation when we start reading the Bible like it's an instruction manual. 
Um, for instance, there are verses in the New Testament in Paul's letters. We'll be talking some about this next week where Paul is giving, he is giving instructions to the church. But if we read his instructions like it's some kind of, uh, you know, instruction manual with no context, we're going to misinterpret what it is that he says. Do you know, the Gospel Tabernacle has a policy manual. Another organization I'm involved with, Al Equipment Impact, has a policy manual. Every year we send this out to board members and staff members so that they can refer to it. Um, I don't have to tell you, if you've been around policy manuals, that policy manuals are not the most exciting reading, right? As a matter of fact, we only refer to them when we need something specific out of them, right? We use them as a reference material. We make a mistake if we treat the Bible as an instruction manual that we refer to to find a verse to speak to a particular thing without understanding the big picture. Uh, the Bible, fundamentally, is not a science textbook, at least not in the way that uh, modern people understand science as this you know, discovery of empirical truth, of observing things and finding you know, the laws of nature that come out of that. There are parts of the Bible that speak to science, but it wasn't written to us as a science textbook. Um, in many ways, it's not any kind of history textbook as modern people understand history. Now, I want to be clear, the Bible is a true story, and there's tons of history in it. But most of us, our view of history has been formed by the way that history has been studied in Western culture for hundreds of years, kind of in this scientific way. When we are reading a history textbook, uh, our tendency is to think that we're reading an impartial, kind of without agenda report of history. Now, in recent years, you may be unaware of this, but in more recent decades, um, even historians have challenged that notion of history and said, look, no matter who's writing that history book, they have a perspective. It, it's not impartial. They have a perspective that they are reporting on these historical facts. They're stringing together the information in a particular way. Um, and that has made us read history more critically to think, okay, there's people's perspectives embedded into this. Their biases are embedded into this. But there's also things to celebrate in that. It's like, look, when people are telling history, um, they're sharing something from their perspective. So we get to know this person or this group of people better. I want to tell you that although the Bible is full of history, it is unapologetically a historical account with an agenda. The agenda is God's and it's to reveal himself. So he's not just reporting to us historical facts, and nowhere does the Bible claim to be impartial or unbiased. God is revealing himself in these historical facts, and so when we read it, we're trying to understand him. It's not just a history book. It's not just a newspaper report. You know, like I said, we, we want to think, or what we desire is for things that are impartial or unbiased, it's probably unlikely that any such thing exists, by the way. People are always bringing their perspective to it. But that's not what the Bible is. God wrote this with an agenda. And then I want you to really reflect on this one, that the Bible is not God. The Bible is not God. I think this is really important for Bible-believing people uh, to come to terms with, that the Bible is not Itself, God. Now, here's what I, what I mean by that. Number one, that it's possible to know the Bible and to not know God at all. Um, there was a, I had an Old Testament uh, theology professor in, in Bible college, and he talked about how he went to a university where most of the professors did not believe in any of the accuracy of the scriptures. That's very different than what we believe in our network. 
Um, but he did not believe in any of the accuracy of the scriptures, but he had memorized much of the first five books of the Bible in Hebrew, um, its original language. So he had memorized this text. It was in him. He could say it almost without thinking. Didn't believe that any of it was real. So it's possible to know the Bible, but to not know God at all. In fact, it's possible to do really unholy things with the Bible. If you need uh, proof of this, consider that when Satan tempts Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, what does he do? He quotes Scripture. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that Satan's knowledge of the Scriptures probably outpaces the knowledge of the Scriptures of anyone in this room, right? And not only Satan, but people have done really wicked things with the Scriptures. Um, there are whole abuses perpetrated against whole groups of people that people claimed had scriptural justification to do this wickedness against other groups of people. So the Bible can be used for unholy things. Now listen, when I say that the Bible is not God, consider that God himself can never be used to do something unholy, right? It would contradict himself, but the Bible can. So the Bible is not God. As a matter of fact, people or movements that make the Bible a God often end up missing God altogether. People or movements that make the Bible a God often end up missing God altogether. Jesus says this one day when he's talking to some of the religious leaders of his time, people who studied and memorized and knew the word of God, and he says this to them in John 5, 39. Could you read this passage with me from the screen? Read it aloud with me. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is telling the religious leaders, you've put your salvation in the Bible. But the Bible testifies about me, and you're missing me. How could you be so close to me, to this book that testifies about me, and miss me? And it's because there's so much pride for these religious leaders in knowing things about the Bible. I know whole churches, whole movements are like that. They've made the Bible itself a God. Jesus claims something different in this passage and elsewhere. Jesus claims that he is the truth. And this is, this is a good starting point for understanding what the Bible is and what the Bible is not. That truth is a person. It's not a book. Truth is a person. And salvation comes through this person, not through a book. If salvation just came through a book, then we could be saved by knowing enough from that book. Right? But Jesus makes a different kind of claim, um, that salvation comes through him, in particular, what it is that he accomplished in his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. The good news is that Jesus has died, Jesus is risen, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and is king. That is what salvation is. Jesus makes his bold claim about himself. John 14, 6, could you read aloud with me on the screen? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't come to the Father just through knowledge of a book. You don't come to the Father just by learning information about God. Jesus says, I am the way. Truth is a person. 
Now, this may be the, the most difficult part for you to follow with me this morning. You can listen to it later if I'm not clear enough for asking questions. But I want us to consider what this means, that truth is a person. Because while we're looking at Jesus' descriptions of himself, particularly in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John wrote this account of, of Jesus' life and ministry, um, I want us to consider how John begins his own description of Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, a passage that will be familiar to some of you. Could you read this out loud with me? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In the beginning was the word. And notice that the English translators capitalize that word, word, because we know that John is talking about someone in particular, Jesus. Now, there are those who read John's description of Jesus as the word of God, truth as a person, and wonder if John is referring to some philosophical notions in Greek and Roman philosophy. Um, the Greek word for word is logos, and that word was important in the Greek philosophical tradition. And so some people wonder if John is making some kind of reference to Greek philosophy when he describes Jesus as the word. That may be hard to understand, but we really don't need to understand it because I don't think that's a good way to interpret what John is saying here. John is one of the most Jewish writers of the New Testament in his language, in his approach, in, the organiz in his organization of information. This man is a Jew to the core. And I think he would have been way more familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, than he was with Greek philosophy. And you cannot read John chapter one without thinking about another portion of the Hebrew scriptures, and that is Genesis chapter one. As a matter of fact, both of those chapters, Genesis 1 and John 1, begin with the same phrase, in the beginning. And John says, in the beginning was the word. Um, now, let's think about the reference to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning of all things, this same phrase is used, in the beginning. And then it talks about how God did what? Spoke. God said... Let there be light. And there was light, right? So one of the first things we see God doing in the Hebrew scriptures is speaking light into existence. This gives us a picture into two things that the word of God is. Just track with me for this second. I'm going to bring it home for you. First of all, that God's word is performative. That is, what he speaks performs itself. What he speaks Happens. God says, let there be light, and there is light. God's word actually creates reality as God defines it. It's amazing. That's what God's word does, creates reality. And I would argue that to this day, God's word conforms to reality as he sees it. It creates reality along the lines of what is in his heart, in what is in his mind. But God's word is also self-revealing. When God's word performs something, whatever God performed reveals to us who God is. Have you ever thought about this? That if God didn't reveal himself, we wouldn't know anything about him. 
We believe that God is a self-revealing God, that he has revealed himself in particular ways, and this is the only reason we know anything about him or understand anything about him. So when God said, let there be light, when he spoke that word and it performed itself into light, and then there was light, I know we're in deep waters right now, just trapping me. When there was light, um, that light actually tells us something about who God is. It's no surprise that later on in the scriptures, God is described as light. Because when we look at light, whether it be from the sun or the stars or the moon, there are actually things we can learn about God from that light, right? So God's word performs itself, and it reveals to us something about who God is. Now, John takes that concept and says that in the beginning was the word, and that this word was so much more than just the light that God created on the first day. John is saying that truth is a person. He's saying that Jesus himself is actually the word of God. Now let's think about what that means for a second. It means that at the beginning of creation, let there be light, and throughout history, that God's word kept performing itself and revealing something about who he was. He spoke creation into existence. It performed itself. We learned something about who he was. He spoke through the prophets in Israel's history. Those words performed themselves and taught us something about who God was. We kept learning something about who God was as he revealed himself. But now John is saying that Jesus is the word and always was the word from the beginning. Remember, God's word is self-revealing. It tells us something about who God is. John is saying that the very clearest picture we could ever have of who God is, is this man, Jesus the Christ, because he is one with God himself. He is the word. Truth is a person. And remember, God's word is performative. So John is saying that God's word, this person, Jesus, became the very thing that God is, love and salvation for the whole world to us. John is saying that God's word eventually performed salvation through this person, Jesus. Now, I know that's some heady stuff to ponder, but the sum of what all I'm saying is that God's self-revealing and performative word, his word in creation, his word through the prophets, his word throughout history as recorded in scripture, found its culmination and clearest form, not just in a book or in words on a page, but in a person named Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is that the entirety of God's word, the Bible, is really just about one person, Jesus the Christ. The Bible is Jesus' story. The whole thing. Everything that happened before he came, everything that happened after he ascended back to the Father, the Bible is Jesus' story. See, everything that I'm saying, you know, that that God is not the Bible, the Bible is not God, none of that is meant to diminish the importance of the Bible. It's actually the opposite. What we're saying is that this book testifies to us about the one who is the word of God, and that's why we love the Bible. <laughs> that's why we're Bible people. That's why we love to read it and to speak it to each other, because we believe that our obsession with Jesus finds its pursuit in the pages of that book right? We love to see him there. Now, we'll talk about this next week, but I'm suggesting that everything in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Greek scriptures, um, the everything, it's history, poetry, laws, everything else, all of it is just about this one person, Jesus. 
that's why we love to say that we love the Bible because Jesus is the word of God. So here's something I would like us to ponder as a network, that it's possible to know the Bible and to not really know Jesus, but I would argue that it isn't possible to really know Jesus and not know and love the Bible. Um, it's possible to know the scriptures and never encounter the risen king. It's happened to too many people. But it is impossible to really know Jesus, the risen one, the one who died for our sins and is worshiped forever, the lamb who was slain. It's not really possible to know this risen king without knowing and loving the scriptures. It's our love for him that motivates our love for the word of God. Consider an illustration with me. Um, you know, I'm an extrovert by nature, so I love to meet new people. I'm loving this new role I'm in because I get to meet lots of new people. I love it. That's energizing to me. Um, and so let's say that you didn't know me at all, and one day you, uh, you know, met me at some kind of social gathering, a party or a picnic or something, and you kind of observed me from a different, uh, a distance. And, uh, you know, maybe you're seeing my personality, that I like to engage people and laugh, and maybe I seem funny and nice to you. Um, and maybe you only observe me from a distance that way, like we were in the same room together, and you picked up on some things about my personality. After you left that party or picnic, could you actually tell people that you knew me? Maybe you observed something true about me. Hopefully what you saw was authentic. Hopefully I wasn't you know, putting on a show. But even if it was authentic, uh, could you really say that you knew me after that? What would it take to know me? Well, I would argue that what it really takes is knowing and understanding my story. So if you really wanted to know me, it would require what? Time. It would require listening. It would require trying to understand the stories I tell, the convictions that I hold, the things that I've experienced. As you stepped into the reality of my story, um, you could with more confidence say that to some degree you know who Joel Repic is. Well, let's take it one step further. What if in time, as you listen to my story, you found out that there were parts of my story that were hard to digest, or hard to understand, or even seemed at face value in contradiction to the funny nice guy you saw at the picnic? For instance, what if you heard me tell parts of my story that were sad? What if I shared with you betrayals and abuse? Um, what if I opened up to you convictions that I hold that you might not agree with? What if we talked about politics and I told you what I thought? Um, what if, you know, there's been things like this in my ministry, like God has birthed this deep desire in me for racial reconciliation and justice for the poor. Over the years, those things birthed in me have offended people. Um, what if you got to know me and you've just, that stuff made you squirm. I'm sure it has made some of you squirm. Do you write off those hard things and just say, no, I prefer the Joel I saw at the picnic. You know what I mean? <laughs> the funny one, the laughing one, that's Joel. I know Joel, I like that one. You know what I mean? Instead of, instead of these harder things. See, if you really want to know me, it's gonna require hearing my story, listening to me, understanding. I mean, it's gonna mean sitting with some things that you might disagree with, because um, I'm different than you and you're different than me. 
Um, it's going to mean that some of what I say might make you squirm, that some of the parts of my story, especially the particular painful ones, may not leave you feeling good when you leave that conversation, right? It might be different than the laughing and the joking that I was doing at the picnic, but I would say the more you sit with my story, the more you know me, right? I would say this, friends, that the Bible is Jesus's story, the whole thing. And it cannot, not one word of it, can be separated from him. If we don't take time to listen to it, understand it, digest it, chew on it, um, then we aren't willing to really go deep with him. If we aren't willing to sit with the hard-to-digest parts, the difficult parts, the challenging parts, because there are parts of that book that will really make you squirm. You know, if, if we want to just write off the parts that we disagree with, I'd say that we have become friends with our own perception of who we think Jesus is, but not Jesus himself. And see, our network, wherever we go from here, must never separate Jesus from his story. You can't do it. Um, because Jesus is what we are obsessed with as a network. We love the Bible because Jesus is the word of God. And this book from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. If we do try to separate Jesus from the Bible, we'll find very quickly that we've stopped being friends with Jesus, and instead we become friends with a figment of our imagination that we call Jesus. Not only is it delusional, it's idolatry. And nothing will kill mission quicker. So here's my heart for us as a network. I want to be a movement that's experiencing revival by experiencing revival in the word of God. Real quick, and this is where we're gonna to go to Nehemiah in chapter eight. This is gonna be quick. I wanna tell you a brief story from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament. You know, there was a period of time in Israel's history when the nation had been taken into captivity by pagan invaders. Um, and the prophets had prophesied this because God's people had been disobedient and they were taken into captivity. But eventually, after many years, God moved so that they could be released from captivity and come back home to their homeland, to Jerusalem. And there's a whole period of Israel's history where they are rebuilding after this period of captivity. I've noticed in our movement that this is a part of the Hebrew scriptures we really like to read and to say to each other. And it makes sense to me because I think we are a rebuilding movement. Uh, we are rebuilding in an area that has experienced a lot of marginalization and disinvestment. But in the rubble of our region, we are also trying to rebuild God's vision for his church. We're a rebuilding group of people. Uh, we want to rebuild God's vision to be people full of the spirit, released to mission. So it's no surprise to me that we're drawn to these portions of the scripture, which some of it you can read in this book, Nehemiah. There's another book called Ezra uh, that you can read more there too. Um, at one point, while Israel was being rebuilt, they rediscovered the books of the law of God, portions of the Hebrew scriptures that had been lost during the turmoil of Israel's history. You can read about this rediscovery of God's word in Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, there's a part of the story where a priest named Ezra, who also has a book named after him in the Old Testament, a priest named Ezra gathers the people and reads to them out loud the words of the Bible that had been lost. Um, read these two verses with me out loud, Nehemiah 8, 3 to 8. 
He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So Ezra is standing there with the people, all the people gathered, and he's reading to them this rediscovered book, the Bible. It's really interesting to me, in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people have three responses. First, they break out into worship, and this is always an appropriate response to God's voice. He's revealing himself. His word is performing itself, and so in gratitude, we begin to praise him. Read with me, Nehemiah 8, 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Next, the people, after they worshiped, wept. Why? Because they realized that they were in need of repentance of turning from reality as they defined it to the reality of what God had revealed in his word. And here again, weeping and repentance are always appropriate responses. When God's word goes forth, some of the people who really mentored us in prayer environments told us that when the spirit is moving in a room and people begin to weep with repentance, you stop everything and do that. That's better than the sermon. It's better than anything else going on in the room because there's always a miracle when people's hearts become soft and start to turn back to the law of God. Read with me, Nehemiah 8, 9. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So they worship and they weep, and then finally their weeping turns into a party. They rejoice together in community. This too is also always an appropriate response to God's voice. This party breaks out. Read with me, Nehemiah 8:12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Friends, this is what I want for our network and our movement. I want to be a people who worship in response to God's word, who weep and repent if we have to in response to God's word. I never want our hearts to be so hardened that we don't weep in response to the correction of God's word. And I want to be a people who know how to party in response to God's word. (laughs) We got that part. (laughs) But you know what? I was thinking about how partying and joy have increased among us. And let me tell you something. You know what will take that party to the next level is being a people who know and love the word of God. Because it's the word of God and the freedom it leads us into and the person it leads us to who is himself. The reason the party was called, he is himself the party, right? The word leads us to that person, reveals that person to us. And so it's love for this book, this written word of God, Right, that leads us to that party. So today, as I end, my challenge is very simple. Um, and we're going to get more specific over the next few weeks. But here's just my challenge for today. It's as simple as I can make it. It's to read it. It's just to read the Bible. Now, or listen to it. I know some of you might really struggle, you know, with reading. But, you know, you can listen. I have an app. Now there's so many resources. I have an app called, I think it's called Streetlights. 
but they put this hip-hop beat behind it. Oh, I love it. You know what I mean? So I listen to that sometimes while I'm working out, but I just want us to read it. Now, that may seem really overwhelming to you. You might be thinking, I've had many people say, well, when I read it, I don't understand it. Well, I want to tell you today, don't allow what you don't know about the Bible to make you feel afraid. Instead, tap into a different emotion. Let it make you feel curious and hungry. And here's why. It's because this book is leading us to a person. The Bible is not some text to be mastered, right? It is opening to us this person who is the truth. And if you hung out with me and I told you parts of my story and you didn't understand all of it, I would hope that that wouldn't make you never talk to me again, right? I would hope that that wouldn't make you feel afraid. I would hope that it would make you feel curious, that it would make you ask questions, that it would make you try to understand what I'm trying to communicate. And we can approach the Word of God with the same kind of freedom, just approach it open and curious, almost playfully, I'd encourage you to, um, just to be curious in understanding the Word of God. Um, what I would love to see in our network is for us to be a people who love the Bible and read it when we're alone, read it when we're with other people, and read it everywhere we can in our network. And when we're alone, there's a bunch of good resources. I'm going to be laying some out for you next week that you can take. I mean, if you don't know where to start, Mark is a great place in the New Testament. The Psalms are a great place in the Old Testament. There's plenty of people here who would be willing to help you figure out where to turn to, to begin reading. And I want to give a specific encouragement today. I know sometimes there's a lot of people in our network who are just stepping into understanding the scriptures, who really limit their reading of the scriptures to those verse-a-day things that pop up on your phone. Now, I don't want to put that down, because praise God for Versa-day apps, right? It's a wonderful thing. But here's the problem with it. It's that it never really lets you get comfortable with curiosity as an emotion when you're reading the text. Because you only have one verse to read, and you swipe it off, and it's done. I would love it if you read a few verses, if you actually opened your Bible or went to a chapter. Maybe that verse a day pops up, and you turn to the chapter that it's in, out of the reference. And then maybe it lets you become curious about the verse before and curious about the verse after. See, this is how hunger for the word of God begins to grow. The more we engage it, the more we're comfortable with not having to know or understand everything, the more we're unconcerned about mastering it or comparing ourselves to what other people know about the Bible. Forget all that stuff. It's not going to help you. Just read it and be curious and see what God does in opening it to you. So read it alone. Read it with other people. You know, Find times. The church staff here at the Gospel Tab, every Monday, we read some scripture together. Um, someone turns to it, uh, and then a lot of times, if you look around the circle, everyone else just has their eyes closed. We're just listening, sometimes to a whole chapter of scripture. Do that when you get together in your missional communities, or when you're beginning to engage the day at your nonprofit or business that you're working at, uh, you know, in the place that God has put you to work, wherever. Read it with other people. Find one or two people just to read it. One of my favorite things to do with kingdom relationships is to just sit in a place and read a big portion of scripture together out loud, back and forth, not even trying to understand everything, just to read it together and saying, isn't this amazing? This book is about Jesus, and we're obsessed with him. Um, th this happened to me earlier this week. I thought of the Nehemiah and Ezra thing because this week I had a straight-up business meeting with Jared Boyer um, over the phone, and, you know, he's a leader in our network, 
And I called him and he said, bro, before we ended our meeting like 20 minutes early, he was like, bro, before, uh, you know, we get off the phone, can I tell you what I've been reading in Ezra? Um, and he tells me what he's reading in Ezra. And we're talking about Ezra together. And it's like, I don't understand everything in Ezra. Maybe you don't even know who Ezra is. But whoever this man is, he and his story is really the story of Jesus. And I'm obsessed with him. I'm coming to know his love and grace more and more. So it's worth understanding who Ezra is. Because Ezra is part of Jesus' story. Right? And then to read it everywhere you can in our network. Listen, I love that we are a worshiping and praying people. Um, I hope that never diminishes. But here's how you throw fire on worship and prayer in our movement. Keep reading the word of God in worship and prayer environments, right? I, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's a lot of places where Christians gather, and it's doubtful if the word of God will ever be read aloud in a whole church service. Um, I mean, the themes will be there, but the, a whole passage of scripture will never be read aloud. That gets under my skin like few things do. Not to mention, we are commanded in the scriptures to not forsake the public reading of God's word. The most important things that happens in our gathering is reading. I don't know if you've noticed, we are people of the spirit, and we love when the spirit starts to work among us and worship, and we love to have a party. But how many times have you noticed that we read the word of God on the screen, and it like throws fire on our worship? You know what I mean? Because that story is about Jesus, and we're singing because of Jesus. The Spirit is moving among us, but the Spirit breathed those words. And so when those things come together, it's explosive. So wherever you can, just read the Word of God together. And I think as we do, some things will happen. Um, I think that God will reveal who He is, because that's what His Word always does. I think His Word will perform itself. And Jesus is the word. So we will see Jesus the Christ alive and at work among us. Isn't that powerful? That his word will actually perform itself among us as we get to know Jesus. Not just information. It's stuff we will witness with our own eyes among us. And then we'll worship together in response. We'll weep together in response. The, the more I trust and love Jesus, the more I love repentance. Why not? We get to be closer to him the more we'll reap and repentance, and the more we will parte with joy, right? Please, wherever you do, don't think of the Bible as a joy stealer, because um, it's the Bible that leads us to the party, and the party is a person, amen? Steve.